Welcome to A Path Home. This is the podcast where we demystify the tasks related to after-death care through hearing stories from people who have cared for their own deceased loved ones at home. I'm your host, Sarah Cruz. I'm the director of Heartland Prairie Cemetery, a home funeral guide, death educator, and a member of the National Home Funeral Alliance. Today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Jerry Grace Lyons. Jerry Grace is well known as one of the early leaders of the home funeral movement here in the U.S. The two of us became acquainted through the National Home Funeral Alliance, of which she is a founding and continuing active member. She founded the educational nonprofit Final Passages in 1995 with a focus on conscious dying and family-directed home funerals as a green, holistic, and compassionate alternative to conventional funerals and after-death practices. On today's episode, Jerry Grace shares the story of attending to her dear friend Deanna on the island of Maui in Hawaii. Deanna chose the option of medical aid in dying at the end of her journey through cancer. The Our Care, Our Choices Act was passed in Hawaii in January of 2019. I provide a link in the show notes for more information on that. And to learn more about Jerry Grace's work, you'll find a link to final passages there as well. Thank you for making the time to do this. I know that you're very busy and continue to hold your your trainings throughout this time of quarantining and separation. Yes, I have continued to do some work, um, definitely teaching our online courses. Um, well, they weren't online before the COVID time, but after some period of time went by, we realized um, we didn't know how long this was going to be. So at first I couldn't imagine how we would take such an intimate subject and something where I'm teaching so much hands-on work um, and put it online. But I finally realized that we could, well, I could do some filming for one thing, and then that's part of it. And the other is that I took some classes myself and realized people still bond, even online. So um, I gave it a try, and it worked pretty well. So we're just going to keep teaching online for now um, with our nonprofit Final Passages. Families... um, have also called, even though at first I wasn't getting any calls after COVID. And then I started getting some calls from families to help them with a family-directed home funeral. And sometimes I was just doing it kind of peripherally. And other times I actually went into their home. And, you know, we just did what we needed to do to keep ourselves separate you know, uh, socially distanced in some cases or wear masks, but um, we managed it. And I've been able to help about a a half dozen families, which was great uh, that I could coach a family to washing and, and blessing their loved one, honoring them, you know, but that made me feel really good to be able to keep helping families during this time. You know, and we've all just had to adjust and figure figure out the best way to uh, make sure that everybody is supported and safe. And mm-hmm. it's a tricky time, you know. And I've had some complex cases too. Um, I just did one where I helped a, 
um, it was actually a, a really sweet dear friend who died and and she wanted a Muslim burial, but she also wanted a home funeral. Um, so it was a, what I call a hybrid. And she wanted to be remain at home for three days, which in the Muslim tradition, people are generally put in the ground as quickly as possible, like, like in the Jewish tradition. Right within 24 hours. But of course, that's not even possible. Uh, well, hardly possible, even under the best of circumstances. Um, you almost have to get a special permit from the coroner in order to do a quick burial. But in any case, she didn't want that. She wanted three days at home, and then she wanted to have their traditional Muslim burial. And so it was very complicated because we had to coordinate the getting the paperwork done, getting the cemetery to to dig the grave, and the grave had to be dug at a very exacting angle to the sun. Um, mm. they, they even have apps on their phone to measure to make sure that her head would be facing Mecca, and uh, then her shoulder, the right shoulder, has to be facing downward to the earth and the left shoulder up when she's placed in the in the grave and her brother built a pine platform and he had to coordinate the muslim community to come and wash her body for a second time because we had already done it the first time and um, then they had to wrap her in their shroud in the special way they do it and then drive right over to the cemetery where they did prayers. And then they placed her on this pine platform to lower her into the earth. And then the, the crew members, after they lowered her safely in there, in order to take care of her shoulder being down on the earth in the right angle, um, the two, two uh, cemetery crew members, one of them, I think, jumped down into the grave and took instruction from the Muslim men who, you know, said, okay, turn her on her right shoulder. And he turned her until they were satisfied that she was, her body was facing the right way and mm. her head toward Mecca and her shoulder toward the earth. And then, and then he jumped back out. <laughs> so. Wow. Those are details I just never knew about. And I had heard about having to face Mecca but mm -hmm. I didn't know about the angle of the shoulder and touching mm -hmm. the earth. Mm -hmm. um, the other thing that I think that I understand about um, after death care in the Muslim tradition is that the women care for women and the men care for the men. Is that correct? Yes, it is. That's correct. I was actually there when the three women came to wash her body again, right before the burial. And in fact, um, one of my friends, Constance and I were both with the three women and we assisted them because there were times where they needed some help moving her body back and forth to wash her and also to move her from the table onto the shroud that they had spread out on the on the couch. And there's five different pieces of material that comprise the shrouding. Two of them, there's only three for men, but five for women. Two of them, the pieces of shrouding, cover the private areas of the woman. 
And then they had three more. One came over her head like an apron. And um, there was two others that wrapped different parts of her body in fullness. And then they had to tie the the bows around uh, three parts of her body. Um, the, the, they had uh, little straps that come around and tie over the body to hold the shroud on. And uh, they had to do that just in a certain way. And they also did um, prayers a couple times during this service of washing her. They were not supposed to really look at her body any more than they absolutely needed to. So they had a sheet over her the whole time. And also to begin with, before they even began to do the washing uh, or taking off the calf down that um, she was lying in honor in, um, they started with a very similar prayer as the the Hever Kedisha, who are the Jewish women that come and do the Tahara service of washing and blessing the body. She said a very similar prayer, and that was to ask forgiveness of the person that they were going to be washing in case they did anything that might be uh, interpreted as offensive, crossing any boundaries, doing anything at all that um, there, that there was no intention of harm or anything like that. So, so we were felt, we felt honored to be there with them and watching the whole process and, and, and kind of helping a little bit, but um, it was really interesting. That is so interesting. So now you told me when we first started talking about you coming on the podcast, mm-hmm. you wanted to share the story of a dear friend of yours Mm-hmm. that you helped through her journey um, at end of life and, and afterwards. And I'm so grateful that you offered to share that story with us because I know you have a long history of doing this work and have helped so many people and also you know, trained a lot of people to be able to um, teach home funerals in their own communities and do home funerals themselves for their loved ones and I'm, you know, so I, I know you have just so many stories to share and I'm, I'm so grateful <laughs> that you're going to share one that is a real personal story to you. Yeah. Well, actually this last one also was very personal to me because I did know the woman for over 20 years and it, and it just kind of flowed out of me, I guess, because I, we just really completed that in, uh, about a week ago. Um, so it's very fresh in my in my soul. <laughs> but um, yes, this story um, about my friend Deanna, I've known her much longer than that. She is somebody I met in the, in the 1980s in, our, in my community where I live in Sebastopol. And she would show up at various events or classes or parties or just different things we were invited to, and there she would be, and I would gravitate toward her, and um, and we'd get to talking, and I'd take down her name and in my address book because she was just somebody I connected with mm-hmm. in a kind of natural way, and we just had similar interests in life and a spiritual path, and and so at one point I realized that I had her name 
written in my address book three times. And I went, well, okay, I really need to know this woman more. I need to get to be friends with her. So I called her and we uh, started a friendship, a sisterly friendship. And we ended up taking walks together. And then she moved to Hawaii, to Maui. She was a uh, psych nurse and a she also was a uh, massage therapist. That was her main way of making a living. And then one day she called me and said she had been diagnosed with, um, with cancer. And she was trying to do different alternative things, looking at, at ways that she could not have to take chemo and radiation, and at least at first. And then being a nurse, she met a doctor she really liked, I guess, and who convinced her that doing some of those uh, Western medicine was probably going to help her more with this particular kind of cancer. But she worked on, on treating the cancer every different way that she could. She was very familiar with the health food store there and was taking a lot of things to support her immune system and do what she could. And we visited her. Um, we, we were going back usually about once a year. And so we'd see her and she would, you know, she, I saw at one point she had lost her hair and was wearing a wig and she was still very, very upbeat and positive that she was going to um, beat this thing. <laughs> And we, of course, prayed for her to do that, too. Um, but eventually, it it was going downhill more rapidly. And last fall, so a year ago, she contacted me and said that she was starting to think about taking some medicine if, if she couldn't get better. Taking some medicine to end her life. Yes, taking medicine to end her life. Um, meaning that she was going to choose the legal way of getting prescribed medicine from two doctors that had diagnosed her and um, say that she did indeed have a terminal illness. And there was, you know, I guess because of her pain, um, they were willing to prescribe medicine that would end her life. And uh, she probably had a psych evaluation as well, which people are uh, asked to do to make sure they are of sound mind and mm -hmm. that they're, they have, they're not just depressed, uh, but that they've actually, you know, feel very clear and confident that this is the way they want to end their life. So I know that that, Sometimes it's called a Death with Dignity Act. It's legal in some states, but not all states yet. Uh, it's, I think it started in Oregon, and then it's also in yep. California, mm -hmm. correct? And Hawaii, yes, clearly. Our care, our choice is what they call it in Hawaii. They had a number of cases. They've already had a number of people who have used that option. So it wasn't... Uh, that my friend was the first. And the person has to be able to take it themselves, correct? That's correct. They have to, usually it's in a liquid form. 
a lot of people don't realize it's not like having your pet put to sleep uh, where they inject medicine, will go to sleep, and then they give it an injection to stop its heart. That they have to swallow pills mixed into some liquid um, in a mixture, and they have to drink it down. So that is how uh, my friend did end her life. And um, she made the decision, finally, that she was going to do it. She called to let me know. And I knew instantly that I was going to get on a plane and go. And that was in January of this year. And Yeah, so wow. January um, of 2020. And then I got over there. I think it was maybe on a Tuesday. And she had decided she would take the medicine on Friday. So I knew I had a, a few days to be with her, visit her. Uh, before she left. And I was so grateful that I had that time. Interestingly, as soon as I made the decision to go, there was another friend that I had met over there who said she had a place I could stay, just come and stay in her house. And her house ended up being just a few minutes away from where my friend lived. So (laughs) that was, I considered pretty magical yeah, I love it when those those things come together that are so unexpected. It's such a blessing. It is. That it's synchronistic is what we call it. Just or yeah. or the angels providing. <laughs> it's coming through right, right when you need it. True. Yeah. And they were there was such a presence. I I always feel the angels are around me when I do this work, but there was so many things that happened like that, which is why I wanted to even I was thinking of writing a little story about her death and and then all the magic that happened around it because I felt like in part it's um as I always do that it's the spirit of the person who's who has died helping to provide all the things to go well but also all their guides and their angels and mine everybody kind of coming together and working out all the details for us. So mm-hmm. um, I didn't have to worry. Uh, everything was provided. We had about 16 people in the room when Deanna took her medicine. Uh, and it was a, uh, yeah, it was a big process, a big event. But even prior to that happening in the previous days before uh, Deanna took her medicine, she had just her spiritual nature drew to her some spiritual people. There was a, a devotee of Amaji, who is the hugging guru. So many people have heard of her. Yes. And um, Deanna was a devotee of hers and uh, felt very close to her. And one of her devotees was on the island who had come over to teach uh, some a group of people. So just happened to be there. And he was able to come over and do prayer work with her, uh, which meant so much to her because Amaji had told her when, uh, when she communicated that she was dying from the cancer, Amaji had said to her, your, your job now is, is only to be love, just be love. And that's what um, Deanna told me um, when I got there. She said, my job now is just to be love. 
Isn't that wonderful? I mean, that really should be our job all the time, right? (laughs) (laughs) I know there's a lesson for us right there. Why wait till it's our final days or weeks? Um, But I think, you know, just to give her that focus and that commitment to keep Mm -hmm. her mind, you know, clear and on purpose, on her own purpose of leaving. And part of it, of course, she was um, sad to leave and I did see tears, but also the pain was quite severe and it wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And once she lost the ability to walk, which was what was keeping her together and healthy to some degree, enough degree to keep her going. Um, once she, the tumor on her spine, she, the, the tumors had grown into other parts of her body. And when they got to her spine and she couldn't walk anymore, I would say that was the beginning of the marker for her that it was time to let go. The hospice nurse showed up. She came with all of the medicine. By the time that happened, there were 16 of us in the room and we were in a, you know, like a circle. The bed was against the wall and we made a wide circle in the room. And the person, the nurse mixed up the medicine and started with a a medicine that would, was an anti-nausea pill. And these were not uh, liquids. This was a pill for her to take. And then a half hour later, they gave her another couple of pills, I believe. It was something that relaxed her, but still keep her awake enough to be able to take the final medicine. So then a half hour later was the final medicine. So that was an hour after things began. And that was a liquid. It was three ounces of liquid that she had to drink down. And sadly, it's pretty bad tasting. Um, in part because Deanna didn't want to mix it with apple juice or grape juice or one of those that would help get it down because she she had she had quite a bit of vomiting before uh, with the sickness and she herself I think had concerns about that happening so she said no I'll drink it straight even if it's really bitter and it was very very bitter <laughs> she she said oh this is vile. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, we kind of knew it was going to be. So how would you describe her state of mind during the these last few, you know, half hours where she takes the first one and then has a half hour of being there with all of you around? She her? was um, very calm. And in between, I'd say after the first one, my friend Nirja, who is also very close friends with very close friends with um, Deanna, she suggested that that might be a good time for all of us to come up and say a couple of words to Deanna, our personal goodbyes to her. And I thought it was really perfect timing, very appropriate. And each person walked up, and some knelt down. Uh, beside her bedside. And they said not a lot of things. They didn't want to overwhelm her, but just saying, you know, I'll see you on the other side, Um, you know, things like that, or I'll always love you. I'll hold you in my heart. I'll, 
you know, I'll take you with me to the beach when I go. I'll, you know, just little sentiments that were very meaningful for each of them. And so that was um, part of the ceremony that was created. And then we began to chant. Different people in the room had led chants, had beautiful voices, new chants from Sufi, uh, Sufi dancing. Deanna had been a big part of the Sufi community in uh, Hawaii. She had worked, gone to many Sufi camps and worked at them, both as a nurse and doing massage and doing, you know, various things. Some of those people knew Sufi chants, and then she knew people from other groups and other singing groups. So different people came up with different chants to sing and would teach them to us, or other people in the group just knew them and would sing along. But she had actually asked me to be a part of, um, well, mostly the home funeral piece, but she had also asked Nirja, our mutual friend, to be her guide on her way out. So her kind of end of life doula. So she and I were both on the bed with Deanna when Deanna was taking her medicine. But other, all the other people were sitting on the floor around and on couches and different things around the room. And so then different people were leading the chants and we would take little breaks between them sometimes, just a minute or two to let it completely resonate with our bodies and come into us fully. And then somebody would come up with another one and we'd begin to sing again. And the one that, that we were watching after she took the final medicine, Nirja and I were sitting on the bed and watching her from time to time to see if her, we could see her pulse. And at one point we were singing a, uh, a chant called Ruach, Ruach. And it's a Hebrew word, which means breath, wind, or spirit. And that is the chant that she went out on. She went out on breath, wind, and spirit. And it seemed so appropriate. We were singing, everybody was just singing their hearts out. And I suddenly turned to, to look at Deanna and I saw that I could not see the pulse in her neck at all. And I, I looked at Nirja and I said, I think she's gone. And um, we felt for a pulse and she was gone. Somebody said in that moment, or just like a minute later, as, as after we felt her pulse and said, yes, it feels like she's, she's, um, her spirit has flown. Somebody said, um, what time is it? And they looked at their clock, and this was like two minutes afterwards, and they said, 4.22. And then somebody said, oh, but that's been a couple minutes, so 4.20. And then everybody in the room laughed. And I, I was so naive, I didn't even know what they were laughing about. And somebody had to tell me that that was a symbol of, um, of marijuana. It was about um, time to take a smoke or light up or something. Weed. Anyway, yeah. people thought that was her, her little bit of humor as she went sure. out. Right, absolutely. 
Well, and I just love the um, the feeling in the room must have been so high, beautiful and <laughs> elevated. Yeah. Because, you know, with all that sound surrounding her with that singing and chanting, it's just, you know, it was, what a way, what a way to go. Yeah. I mean, I, I can only say I'd love that. I'd love it if I went out that way with people singing these beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful chants and surrounding me with love, you know, surrounding everyone should be surrounded by love like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, she just, it was so, so peaceful and so elevated, as you said. So, um, following that, we all sat quietly for a while. I feel like if I were to do it again, I would, I think I would like to, say to everybody after the person takes their last breath if we could just remain silent for you know a half hour or even up to an hour and if you want to you know leave the room and talk to others or you know feel like you have some emotion that you want to express or whatever to someone else um, if you would just leave the room go to another space where you can leave this a silent space. I think that I would do that. We, mm-hmm. People remain silent for quite a while, but it would have been, I think, nicer to even have it said ahead of time to remain, keep it in, in silence for a longer period of time. Um, she lived in a very tiny space, so it wasn't like they could walk into another room. They had to walk outside. And um, the weather was beautiful. And so, you know, it was easy and people had brought food. So outside on the deck, there was, there was a table of food and people went out and, you know, started to talk with each other. So it was all very beautiful. Um, and uh, one thing that um, had happened the day before Deanna, um, <laughs> it was very funny. She, you know how you may have heard Sarah that people rally right before they're they they die when they're dying naturally yes. and they'll be in this very sleep state or coma kind of state where they're drugged or or not drugs but just sleeping a lot and and it seems like they're getting closer to death and then all of a sudden they have this these hours or a whole day where they're they're they act like their old self And they're very much feeling very alive like they used to feel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Like all of a sudden have like a full meal and, or walk across the room and you're just like, what's going on? (laughs) And she was like that the day before she died. It was like she was getting ready for her party and she was directing me and her close friend Ro from her childhood. And she was... She was like the sergeant directing us to clean the house. And you take this, put this in a pile for my friend, Mary, put this in a pile for my friend, Christine, put this stuff over in this bag, take, you know, I mean, she was just directing us and it was somewhat comical. I mean, she was like, you know, she was giving us this detail of what we needed to do. And then when she was done with that, it was a couple hours, she was 
just up and telling us what how to handle everything. Um, she laid back down in bed and then she was laying there and she said, oh, and there was a sliding glass door out to the patio and she was looking out, her bed was facing the sliding glass door. And she said, look, at, do you see the rainbow at the door? And I looked and I said, well, I'm not seeing it, but I know that you are. I'm sure you are. And she said, oh, yes. And now it's turning into a big, beautiful butterfly. And I went, wow, you know, great. <laughs> you know. And so um, I, I thought, well, I've heard people see all kinds of things, you know, people up on the ceiling, old relatives visiting, angels, all kinds of things. But for my friend Deanna, she saw a rainbow turn into a butterfly. And I thought, well, how beautiful is that? Yeah. I find it so fascinating that she experienced so many things that someone who is going through the natural process of dying experiences when she had selected her dying time. Right. You know yeah, I do. Um, even though she chose the time herself, she still went through the process as though it those, was all. Yeah. Those kind of like hallmark experiences. It was all still very a natural unfoldment of things that you would expect would happen without without taking something artificial. So I would love for you to describe a little bit of just all the after-death care. If you sure. could describe for us, you know, how that all unfolded. I'm guessing yeah. that you were instrumental in, in guiding the, the other two yeah. along. And Nirja certainly was capable of doing that, had done it for a number of, of people. Actually, Nirja had taken classes from me, and then she was uh, had been an end-of-life doula for a long period of time, so she was familiar with all of that, but she, um, I feel she felt it was right for me to step into that role as, as more of a teacher in that area, so I did guide the women who did remain there following, we let, we allowed, first of all, we allowed Deanna's body to lay still and quiet for a long time. And then at some point we moved her to a massage table, her own massage table, as a matter of fact. And we, we did have a number of women that participated in getting the soapy water. Also, Deanna had a lot of essential oils there. So we chose the ones we wanted and we put some in the water. Um, we, we washed her body thoroughly because we knew she was going to be lying in honor for at least three days. And so then we picked out some clothes. She may have chosen those things to put on. I'm not re remembering that exactly if she chose them ahead of time or her friends who knew her well and went, oh yeah, this is her, this is who she is. Um, and we, you know, we dressed her and then the flowers began to come and the roses, mostly roses uh, for a while. There was a table set at her feet at the end of the massage table with a bowl of, of rose petals. 
so that as people who were coming to visit the next days could just actually take a handful of the roses and sprinkle them over the top of her. But on top of that, they mm-hmm. took lays and put them around her face and and just kept layering them. And then they started putting them in her in between her toes. And there so there were roses all decorating her feet. And then there were uh, altars put all around her room. So we had the whole room was filled with flowers and um, beautiful material. Um, she had a lot of sarongs with you know, whales and dolphins. She, she used to, Deanna used to swim with the, with the whales. And the whales became a theme for me um, because following her death and, and this lying in honor, people who came in and, you know, just for every day, um, they kept changing the flowers out and, or adding lays to her. And it, it was just magnificent. But also, Nirja had arranged a whale, um, you go out on whale watch boats. And mm-hmm. so right after we took Deanna, oh, that's another thing I wanted to mention is that there was a, a cardboard casket and we had uh, painted it. So somebody uh, painted it with white paint and it was set out there with lots of paints and pens and all kinds of decoration for people to be able to write notes to Deanna or draw pictures on the box, all kinds of different things. And that was the box that we were going to place her in to take her to the crematorium. So that was another mm. um, avenue of expressing people, people expressing their grief when they came to visit her and they would sit in the room with her and then they would go out and decorate on the box. So we had that going for the full three days very nice. And then, and then, of course, we had another ceremony of uh, laying her in the box and, and then doing more songs and prayers. And then until the um, funeral home there came to get her. I think they wouldn't allow us there to drive her body to their facility. But we did ceremony. We had time to do a farewell, uh, place notes in there with her and you know, little things we knew she loved that she'd like to take with her. And did a lot of the flowers accompany her? Oh, definitely. <laughs> she was covered in flowers and she, she looked divine. Um, so anyway, we took her to the crematorium and the very next day, Nirja had arranged for us to go out on a whale boat, a whale watching boat. And there were an enormous amount of whales this year. Um, somebody later told me that the past few years, there were hardly any whales that came in to that area. And this year there was more whales than people had seen in a decade. It, it was just, it was nonstop that we went out, we, we were, we saw them from the boat from a distance. And then we went into the water and I could hear the whales singing under the water and then right before we, or just after the, the captain turned the boat to come back to shore, all the whales we had seen, and we had seen a lot of them breaching that day, but they were from a distance, quite a distance. Right as he turned the boat to come back in, a whale breached right beside the boat. It was so oh magnificent. Gosh. If you've never been near a breaching whale, (laughs) 
it took our breath away. I'm sure. Even the captain of the boat said, wow, <laughs> you know, that was the icing on the cake. So it was just, we were just floored. We were <laughs> just mind blowing, mind blowing, completely mind blowing. And then one of Deanna's friends arranged for us to have lunch together outside on the deck, right near the water where we were all going to swim. And while we were having lunch, it was like play day for the whales. There were so many, uh, they were so close and they were slapping the water with their uh, fins and they were breaching and they were playing and there were babies and there were mamas and they were just ongoing through our whole lunch. The four of us who had been part of caring for Deanna. That's so joyful. So, so much, much joy. joy. So much joy. Even when I left um, Maui and I, my plane was flying up over the water, I saw a whale breach and I went, ah, oh, the final farewell from my friend. That's why I want to write a little book about it and say, look, you sure. know, this, this can happen to you. This too can, you can arrange this. <laughs> you can arrange for a, um, magical journey on your way out and not only for yourself but for all the people you love well thank you so much for sharing all the details of that story i really appreciate it a path home is a production of the national home funeral alliance a nonprofit organization dedicated to educating and advocating for communities and families who choose to care for their own loved ones at death check out our website at homefuneralalliance.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to tell a friend and subscribe and review wherever you get your podcasts. If you would like to share your home funeral or natural burial experience on the podcast, please email me at podcast at homefuneralalliance.org. We'd love to hear from you. The music at the beginning and end of A Path Home is written and performed by Sarah Cruz. Our beautiful cover art is by Linda Carre. And until next time, remember the words of Ram Das: we are all walking each other home. I want to be there to walk you home. I'll tend to your body, you'll tend to my soul. And if it happens the other way around, I know you're gently.